What is the one thing that you should never be afraid to say in a job interview? Today, Barb McLean sits down to talk to me about the business of school. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Barb McLean is a legend in my books. For many years, she served the Bishop Strawn School community as the Assistant Head of Human Resources and Professional Growth, which basically means that she's responsible for all of the adult issues in the building. I've wanted to sit down with Barb since I started this podcast. And if you remember the episode where I talked to Patty McDonald, she actually told me I should interview Barb McLean. I am so happy that Barb took the time to chat and let me tap into her wellspring of knowledge on the experience of applying for and interviewing for jobs in education before she completed her career in education the very next day. The very fact that she was so happy to record an episode while I'm sure she had so many other things to finish up, is a clear testament to how much she values people, this profession, and continual learning. I so loved this conversation. We talked about how to make a resume and cover letter stand out. How can you make a cover letter work for you? Some crucial interview do's and don'ts. Honestly, they're cringeworthy. As well as some key reflections Barb has had about diversity, equity, and inclusion in her profession. The first time I met Barb, I was interviewing for a position at BSS, and I instantly knew that I wanted to learn all I could from this woman. Today, I am so excited to share a few kernels of wisdom from my chat with Barb McLean. Barb McLean, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You're very welcome, (laughs) Celeste. I'm happy to be on. I've I've, uh, listened to your podcasts, and I think they're wonderful. Why, thank you. Uh, I am really excited to get to talk to you because tomorrow is your final day at BSS. And I'm sure you are very busy in your final days, closing up shop and tying up all loose ends. So it really matters that you took time to sit down to chat about teaching and the business of schools. I I don't think a lot of people outside of um, the independent school community have a role like you at their school. So why don't you start off by just explaining what is your role at the Bishop Strawn School? Um, My actual title is Assistant Head Human Resources and Professional Growth. So what that means is that I deal with all of the adult issues in the building, whether it's (laughs) advertising for a position, to onboarding that position, to doing professional growth for that position. Um, It's the retention issues and it's if we end up terminating or putting in any programs that allow for early retirement, those kinds of things. I deal with those, but it's also payroll, it's pension, it's benefits, it's all of the back office pieces of employment mm-hmm. within, any, within any organization, but in a school, um, that it's, it's more intense, I think, because it's a small community. Mm-hmm. So that's the adult piece. Then I have the professional growth, so I have facilitated a professional growth committee for the last number of years that has principals on it, um, an assistant head of innovation and technology. And as well, in the past, we have had a professional learning facilitator on it. She's now retired. Um, And we look at the big picture items for the entire community. That's not to say the junior school issues, the middle school issues, or the senior school issues. They will do their own differentiated professional learning. But these are ones that we want the entire school to be involved in so that they can have 
an understanding of the language, an understanding of the vision, and an understanding of, of what the work is that is happening within the classrooms and in the co-curricular programs. And then I have, it's not part of the title, but I have had oversight for the school safety plan. Mm. So when you're dealing with minors, as you well know as a, as a classroom teacher, and you have many, many pieces of legislation in the educational sector, from the Education Act to various ministry uh, requirements, as well as the, the Ontario Labour and Employment Laws, um, there are a number of regulations that, that must be complied with. And so the Safe Schools work has been um, in the event that we have to either vacate the building, um, do we have everything we need in one place to be able to keep the business of school moving forward. Yeah. So those could be lists of chemical disposal teams, it could be lists of, of how much food do we need to keep boarders eating if we didn't have any food supplies coming in, how much water do we need. Um, so we have teams and teams and teams and teams that we call crisis management teams. And then also as part of that we have the regular crisis management policies, so as you know schools are required to do fire drills and lockdowns and evac procedures, all because you're charged with maintaining the safety and the security of the children, the adults and the facility. So it's, a, it's sort of a catch-all bag of, uh, of responsibilities, but it's kept me interested, challenged and uh, sort of moving forward as as the the legal world changes then we have to adapt as well so in a building full of responsible adults you are the most responsible adult it sounds like you have this oversight perspective of all these little minutia things that me as a regular everyday teacher don't really need to think about you are the i don't want to say you're the parent of the school but in a way you play that kind of loving all-seeing perspective well, the the ap the actual oversight of the school is the head of the school. I mean, that's where that's where the buck stops, and <laughs> and she's the one who will stay awake at night with respect to overall issues. But with respect to the details mm -hmm. of that of that Safe Schools Act, yes, I've had oversight of the Safe Schools. Now, in the in the finance area, there's also the insurance pieces. So mm -hmm. all of these trips that go out need to make sure that our our service providers have proper insurance policies, that they have due diligence procedures in place. So so Tom in the finance area takes care of, of those insurance pieces. And then there's insurance for cyber, there's insurance for, for many, many, many pieces. But from the day-to-day -day oversight of safe schools, that was in my portfolio. Yeah, it's just... Lots of details. And lots of details. You have to be a really detail-oriented person to succeed in your role. and the things that you're paying attention to that people don't even know is happening I think is really amazing like the crisis management work that hopefully never has to get used but you have to think so carefully and meticulously about all those little details just in case well and and in the, the actual crisis policies um, the VPs play a very big role that they they have the oversight of lockdown fire drill and evac so they, they look at those, they schedule those. I just have the oversight of the binder and making sure all of those pieces are in place. The binder. There's and these big, fat, red binders that people have throughout the building. That's what you're referring to. Well, they're the red binders that go in every department, but then there is the massive binder 
that sits in the head's house, sits in the board chair's house. But you house. pull it out at some all-staff yes, meetings. Yes. I feel like you just pull it out to like show people, like, look how big this is. There, it's there a are lots of details binder. in here. You're well taken care of. Yes, we've got your back. Yeah. Um, out of all those things that you named, what do you get most excited about? Like, What aspect of your job do you love? Because certainly with every role, there's things that you just have to kind of get through and check off a list, and there's things that probably you're really excited and passionate about. What aspect of your job do you love? Um, the aspect that I love is the people part, and I, I actually love the educational piece. When I came to VSS, I had never worked in education, and um, I fell in love. I wasn't going to stay long. I didn't join the pension plan, but I fell in love with girls' education and the bold vision that VSS had for educating girls for a 21st century. So I... Um, I loved seeing what was happening in the classroom. I loved in the early days when when we were really breaking new ground, especially in the junior school, because that's where the, the first work started um, from an inquiry perspective. I loved seeing the the learning that was happening in in the community, the junior school community, in the classrooms, the experimentation, but but experimentation based on research. This was not let's try this. This was fantastic research and and very much um, intentionally driven so I love I love the world of education and and learning how girls learn learning how teachers learn to teach girls and I love attracting and retaining great teachers mm -hmm. and great staff you know because it takes both sides to make a school successful so I you know when you kind of close the deal on a good employee it's very exciting I can imagine and the, uh, let's get into that a little bit because I think that that part of your role I find so fascinating because you have sat in on countless interviews and you've been responsible for bringing so many people into the BSS community and what's incredible like when you think about it these people have fallen in love with each other people have become best friends with each other yeah. like you're the mastermind behind all of the people in our community um, I just want to talk a little bit about that process of hiring people and bringing people in, if you wouldn't mind chatting about that for a little bit. In, in my perspective as a teacher, I find it so mystifying how you actually could get a resume and a cover letter to land you a job interview. Can you talk a little bit about what you notice works well for people who are trying to apply for a job? If you're sitting and looking through paperwork after paperwork of different resumes and cover letters, what do you look for when you're trying to find a good fit for a position? Um, I look for uh, a cover letter that jumps off the page. And it doesn't have to jump off the page in an extroverted way. But it has to differentiate itself from the resume because I can read a resume really quickly. And most people either read the resumes first or the cover letters first. And if one grabs them, they go to the second. If it doesn't, they don't go to the second. At least that's in, in my experience. And it's interesting because paper resumes are much easier to read than online. There are too many clicks, too many sortings and shufflings that, that, that has to happen, that can't happen as easily digitally. But so for me, I want that cover letter to be short but to convey a sense of personality and a sense of passion for the learning and for whatever job they're applying for, whether that's teaching girls or whether that's being in an administrative staff position supporting the work of the vision and the mission. 
So um, the cover letter to me is 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 key, um, and and the fact that somebody has a passion for learning to me is really important because our school and I would expect most schools are like this if you're not a, a lifelong learner and if you're not prepared to focus on the learning and to understand that you will never never be there um, then it's not going to work and it's especially not going to work in a school such as ours so so part of the interview process is trying to ascertain to what extent is this person a learner. Mm. So for me, it's, it's a good cover letter. And then the resume has to, be, has to be clean. If you have to work to read a resume, somebody's not gonna work at it mm. because there are way too many resumes to review. So when I say clean, there has to be enough white space. There has to be uh, enough differentiation in terms of formatting, but not too much. So if you get something that's bolded and underlined and italicized and colors, it's just way, way too busy. And it also makes you wonder about their clarity of thought. Mm. Um, so for me, a clean, easy uh, resume and not a long resume. Sometimes we get resumes that are three, four pages. So how long should they be? Like no more than two pages in okay. my mind. So in let's my mind. say uh, a teacher who's been working for fifteen years, uh, how far back should they go with their experience? Like, would you want to see every single teaching position they've ever held, or just the highlights? What do you like? To no, see? I would like to see it all. I'd like to see a chronological order. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are some professions where you can do sort of uh, a content-based resume, a skill-based resume, but I think in teaching. Um, especially in teaching, you want to see what schools people have worked in, what subjects they have taught, because when you get into the senior school, you're looking at mixed timetables. And so you want somebody that has multiple teachables, and you want to know not just where they, where, you know, does their OCT say they have multiple teachables, but do they in fact have the experience having taught in two different disciplines? Mm -hmm. um, because we are often very specific as to what we're looking for, because we're trying to fill timetables with a five-fifth job for, for everybody that wants a five-fifth job. So that means you cross, in, in the senior school, you cross departments. So paper, cover letter, and resume, you would prefer? So well, no. So you see a posting, it's, send it in, and then like... No, you have to apply online. Okay. That, that's the way it goes today. But, but I, I do feel that it's much easier as a, as a resume reviewer to be looking at paper. And, and so what will happen sometimes is you will scan the resumes online and then, and then sort them, and then you'll print mm -hmm. a, a longer list and then shorten that down. Um, because there is a lot of back and forth reviewing as, as, you, as you zero in on what, what you're looking for, what are your key criteria, and, and what does the applicant bring. I find the cover letter so challenging, and I'm really lucky because I was hired at BSS nine years ago now, I'd have to check that number, and I, I really haven't done a lot of resumes and cover letters. Like It's really challenging, I think, for teachers. How should the cover letter be different than the resume? Because aren't you kind of talking about the same thing? Like, what do you want to see in a cover letter that's not in the resume? I don't want to see you regurgitate your resume in the cover letter. I've read that once. Yeah. I don't need to read it in a different format on a cover. And that's what a lot of people do. What mm -hmm. I want to see in the cover letter is why this job has really attracted you. What has jumped out about, about this job that has caused you to actually put pen to paper, or, or not pen to paper, but 
to actually write. <laughs> fingers to keys. Fi- fingers to <laughs> keys. But and, and what is it about you that makes you an attractive candidate to us? Where is your passion for girls? Where is your passion for girls' education? Where is your passion for learning? And what other worldly skills do you have that will tie into this? Because you can leverage many, many, many kinds of skills. Mm. So, you know, we have hired um, individuals who are not OCT certified teachers, but they bring a musical or artistic ability and very strong experience having worked in the field. And when you when you asked about going all the way back, you see where they have worked, but you also see what they've done as a, in graduate school or undergraduate and you know what what they're what they're capable of. So I think that the cover letter has to tap into passions and how those passions are applicable to the job. So the, I feel like what you're saying is that the cover letter is like the intersection between your background and your experience and the position you're applying for in the community you want to be part of. So it's like this is how these two things meet up. Yes. Nice. Yes. And it really, it leverages the candidate. So you get two kicks at the can. You've got the resume and you've got a cover letter. Mm-hmm. Two very different formats, but it, it uh, if they're both well written, then you've got a strong chance at, uh, at an interview, especially um, if you bring the qualifications that we're looking for. What would you want to see in a resume from somebody who is looking to break into the independent school world? Um, so I was really lucky in that I got a job at BSS right out of teacher's college. I did my master's of teaching at OISE. I applied for basically a teacher intern job, um, but I didn't have any independent school experience except for a, um, a placement that I did in one of my jobs for teacher's college, one of my placements. What would be some of the things that you would like to see for a teacher who has never taught in an independent school before? Um, I, I think I, um, I want to know that they have researched our school and that they understand what might differentiate us from another school and that they bring multiple perspectives to the role in, in their capacity in, in some way and that they understand the importance of, you know, 21st century is sort of cliched, but they understand the skills that we are now teaching um, and that they can adapt and have the flexibility to grow and learn with us. So for instance, um, we've just hired, this is not a teacher, but we've just hired somebody who has in, in a in a support role who has never worked in an independent school, which is much more likely to happen on the business side than it is on the teaching side. Um, but they brought very very strong teaching credentials um, as an adjunct individual, and they brought strong technology, and the the philosophy that they brought to the role was very much in line with our philosophy of teaching and building capacity and leveraging. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it sounds like they have to be a fit for that specific community because each independent school has a very different set of needs or wants or desires for their community members. But if they haven't taught at an independent school, how do the other parts of their life intersect with what we're looking for? Is that? Yes, I, I think so. But the other thing that, that um, if you look at our staff, we have a large number who have taught internationally. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that we think 
value adds from a from somebody who has a background internationally is they've had to work in a different culture they've had to adapt to different um, norms they've had to be flexible they've had to be independent they've had to learn they've had to navigate they've had to have a growth mindset basically so the attributes that they bring I mean the subject matter is there or it's not so what you're really hiring for is is the attributes and the attributes of somebody who has taught and lived internationally um, are attributes that that mesh with with what we're looking for um, in, in this environment yeah that's a really good suggestion for people graduating from teachers college thinking about international placements there's a lot of schools in the city and ours is one of them that really values that experience mm -hmm. absolutely uh, job interviews um, I, I'm going to tell you something about my first job interview I don't know if you you probably wouldn't have noticed this but the most awkward thing um, that I think ever happened to me in a job interview was here at BSS when I was interviewing for the associate teacher position. We were sitting at Patty McDonald's big table and it's a glass table and I was wearing a brown skirt and I had like kind of clear-ish colored nylons on and uh, we're sitting around the table and I believe it was you, Patty McDonald, Kath Hant, we're talking and I looked down at my legs and my nylons had a huge rip in them, like just a massive rip all over my thigh. So the whole job interview, I was sitting with like one leg purposefully over the other and then I think Kath Hant took me on a walk around the school and I was trying to find a way to like awkwardly stand with my hand on my thigh or cover up my leg. It was the most awkward job interview I've ever been part of, and I'm so grateful that I got a position here. Clearly no one tell that I was trying to place my hand in a certain way. What are some of the, and that's my awkward interview story, without going into any details about specific people, because that would obviously be unethical. What are some of the awkward things that have either happened to you while interviewing somebody, or that have just happened in the job interview scene in your life? Oh, there have been many, but but I want to go back to your interview, <laughs> because I remember your interview, oh, and yeah. I remember it being a good interview, oh, so that you. awkwardness wasn't apparent. Okay, good. <laughs> I remember your answer to the question on how do you deal with ambiguity <gasps> yeah. being very good. Thank you. And that was sort of a tipping point. That's the other thing about people interviewing here is, is in an inquiry-based environment, you're never there or you're never doing it. Um, and I, I think that for teachers to understand that it's a continuum um, and where they're philosophically aligned with us on, on the child at the center, um, teacher as facilitator, when, when they're aligned that way, then we also know that there's going to be a fit. But coming back to awkward interviews, um, there, there have been interviews where I have known that the individual is not giving us the straight goods. And oh, like they're lying? Like they are mm -hmm. just making up stuff? Mm -hmm. How do you know that? I just have a sense that this isn't, this isn't the real story. Ooh. And on, on uh, several occasions that's been confirmed, but the, I think the, the most blatant was somebody who in fact had used two schools as, as a reference and had accepted roles in both schools and on the first day of school had never shown up. And the only, and when, in this particular case, I, I knew that this was not a candidate for us, even though the skills that he were, was bringing to the table on the surface were, were, were quite good. But that evening, um, the principal or the head of that school happened to call on something else, and I said, funny that you called. We've just interviewed somebody that said he taught at your school. 
and there was this long pause and he said he was offered but he never taught Whoa. so so that was interesting um, I've had Angela and I were in an interview for an economics teacher at one point and she decided she was going to demonstrate supply side demand side economics with a dance and and then challenged Angela on something in the interview later which was I mean that was a very strange interview I couldn't look at couldn't look at Angela Angela couldn't look at me I had to turn my chair sideways but it ended within sort of half an hour because that's I think what you need to give somebody at least half an hour I've had people touch jewelry which is um, kind of a no-no but I think the most disturbing part of a candidate when we interview in panels the disturbing most disturbing behavior I guess from a from a from a candidate is when you interview in panels and the individual talks only to me and doesn't address one or both of the other two panel members I do a lot of kind of moving to try and get them to look at that person and I'll move my head to that person or I'll move my eyes to that person because I know at the end of the interview if a candidate hasn't looked at one of the panel members no matter how great that panel member is they're not going to like that candidate mm -hmm. so from a from a simple simple how do you interview if you're in a panel of three, you have to practice. And you don't have to just tell yourself, I need to look at everybody. You've got to sit and actually practice because everybody has a natural inclination to look to one side of a room or one side of a table. So, so that is my most um, upsetting because there are candidates that I know are really good, but yet they haven't included two people and, and uh, the likelihood of them going forward is sort of 50-50. Those are amazing little nuggets of advice that people could take away from this conversation. I also heard a weird story. I don't know if you were in on this interview, but I heard that somebody was doing an interview during a lockdown, like a lockdown actually happened during uh, an interview. Were you in on that one? Not that I recall. Okay. I, I just heard that like they had to go under the table because there was like glass in the interview space no but I, I don't like, think I was been... part of that I would have remembered that because <laughs> it was um, but I do remember another uh, one which is you know everybody should not have their phone with them or should have their phone turned off and this is this is absolute truth Darren and I were meeting with somebody on a on an exploratory um, senior level exploratory conversation and uh, her phone rang three times three times did and she answer she, it and she's kept fishing in her bag and saying, oh, I'm really sorry, but three times. And and the other thing that, that um, is off-putting to panels is people swearing and becoming too casual. In a job interview. Yeah, and, and that happens as well, which is surprising, but they become quite casual um, and and uh, in some cases have, have sworn rather, rather repeatedly. Oh my goodness. That's, that would be intense. So those are good things to not do. What have what has wowed you in a job interview? What have you seen that has just really captivated you or endeared you to the potential uh, person? What has really worked in your opinion? Well, I think what really works is if somebody is authentic. They, they are themselves. And but not swearing, not that much. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But if they are themselves and they have a passion for what we do, and their their philosophical um, approach is the same as ours, or is aligned with ours, it doesn't have to be the same, but it's aligned with ours. Um, 
so I think that just being yourself I also really like when somebody says I really want this job mm. I really want this job and I don't think there's anything to be afraid of in saying that because there are times we've interviewed candidates and we've thought you know good good qualifications but I'm not sure she wants us right. or I'm not sure they want us and there are lots of people that would give their eye teeth to teach here mm -hmm. um, in many ways it's like a lab school so why wouldn't you want to teach here but if, if somebody seems ambivalent about that there are lots of people that would love to be here because the work is hard here and so you want somebody who really wants to be here that's a really good suggestion. I think that some people would hesitate on saying that because they don't want to come across as like too eager or too keen. But it, I think that when you're communicating that authentically and your excitement shines through in the other things you say, like how can you not be drawn to that candidate? Mm -hmm. The other thing is I think, um, you know, we always ask about uh, what kind of challenges they might face if they were to be offered the job and how would they go about um, sort of mitigating those challenges and sometimes people have none and you know part of it is you don't know what you don't know but I also think that if you actually have thought about teaching in 2019 in an independent school that is quite visionary and bold that there have to be some challenges and so when somebody says well I don't think there'll be any I, <laughs> I, I wonder a little bit about just how deeply they've thought about about the role yeah, it could be a big surprise for them when challenges do happen, because everywhere those challenges will happen. What have you noticed has changed over the years as you've been interviewing people? Like, I have a sense that the quality of people in the building has just gone up and up and up since I've started here nine years ago. Like, I joke with some of my colleagues, like, oh, I wouldn't even get hired now if I were to apply for my yes, job. Yes, you would. <laughs> I mean, thanks for saying that. But I, I, I can tell that there is like a a caliber of people that just keeps getting better and better as I am spending more years in this building. Do you notice that people over the course of, because you started in 1997 at BSS. August of 97. So have you noticed that the caliber of candidates applying for jobs has improved? Is that just to BSS or do you think it's across the whole educational landscape? I, I don't know that the quality of candidates has improved because I said, as I said earlier, I think that the attributes are, are key when you're hiring. I think that education has changed dramatically in the time I've been here. So that attracts people who are interested in a, in a, in a improving, changing, dynamic, challenging work environment but but when I look back to when I started um, teachers really were in their own rooms there was very little collaboration there was very little professional reading there was very little um, sort of change and I remember interviewing for our summer academy positions and candidates coming in from other schools and bringing in sort of 15 years of the same kind of sheets that had been done year after year after year. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. So with the, with the amount of information that exists at everyone's fingertips, the skills that teachers need to be teaching kids from, from a learning perspective, from a literacy perspective, from a life skills perspective, um, they have changed dramatically. So I think what has changed in, in teacher applicants is that mindset 
that that growth mindset to know that I can't possibly be the sage on the stage anymore. There is too much information. What I need to do is look at, as I said, it's cliche, but look at what are the 21st century skills and how can I teach to those so that we're co-constructing the learning instead of just being a transfer of information. So as education has become much more collaborative, much more reflective, um, much more child-centered, teacher-facilitated, I think that those teachers who were always that way inclined and had sort of a philosophical approach that was aligned with that have been attracted to our school. Mm. So I don't think that the caliber has changed. I think those people always existed mm -hmm. and were frustrated in schools where they may have been teaching that were very traditional. But I think they have been attracted to BSS and, and have felt the freedom to kind of co-construct the learning with their students. And I think it takes a really brave teacher to say, I don't know, let's find that out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the journey we've been on, is to, is to say it's okay not to know everything about every project your, your, your student is going to be submitting, but the key principles and the key skills that they need to be looking into. But when you look at some of the, the, the amazing projects that happen in this school, junior, middle, or senior, the learning is, is, is transformed from what it was when I came here, but I think the individuals had that capacity anyway mm. and have just been attracted to what we are doing. And I would like to say that that's a large part because of the job that you have played in this school, of being able to attract good candidates, being able to post the job accurately for what you're actually looking for. And I can only imagine how difficult that is, but I as the person running the adult uh, sphere in this building, that's a large part because of how you have worked so effectively. Well, and, and we do it in teams. So we do the, um, the accountability profiles get done with the hiring, if it's a teacher, with the hiring principal. If it's, if it's in the support business side, it's with the manager and the assistant head overseeing that. But I remember one of the things um, I put on a job a long time ago was a sense of humor. Mm. Because you have to have a sense of humor to work here. And I think you need a sense of humor in most organizations, but you have to, and that attracted, and people commented on that, mm. which was, was interesting. Um, but I think that also when we do the interviews, part of it is trying to put the candidates at ease and make it conversational so that if that, if that happens, and I think we've been quite successful at that, if that happens and you're much more likely to get somebody's story and see how their story matches our need and for them to understand what ours is. But as our story as an as a, a educational institution has become more and more visible, then we have been able to attract a wider and wider pool. Mm -hmm. And I think also having, as you came in, it was an associate teacher, now a team teacher, that has been a fantastic, oh, it's a fantastic right. runway for new teachers to the junior school because it's not easy to come in to the junior school to a classroom for the first time with a very um, developed Reggio-inspired approach to teaching and learning. And it's not easy as a teacher straight out of teacher's college to be able to really learn the role. Like I think you need really a year or two of just shadowing excellent teachers to really well, exactly. understand the job. Exactly, an apprenticeship period because um, how many professions do you graduate and you're expected to perform in the same way somebody who has had 10, 5, 10 years of experience? Because we know that there's, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, your role in the school, 
as a champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this is something that has been part of your portfolio. I don't know if it is officially part of your portfolio, but it's something that you've taken on and that you have done some really incredible advocacy work for our school to be able to explore, to get funding, to go on certain conferences. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you believe it's important for independent schools to do this kind of work in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, I guess it came partly to my role and to the principal's roles because um, it's the people part. So, so from, from the hiring perspective and the training, professional growth perspective, DE&I is, is really critical. So that becomes part of an HR component. But from a classroom perspective and, a, and the teaching and learning environment, the principals have ultimate responsibility for what happens in those classrooms as well. So for me, it was a passion. Um, it was something I strongly believed in, um, as do others. But I, for me, it was a passion. So I learned as, as much as I could. Um, and it was shocking how much we didn't know that we didn't know mm. when Angela and I first in 2012 went to the People of Color conference. It was transformative. Um, Do you in, remember what was something from that very first conference that blew your mind or something that really shocked you? You're like, I didn't realize I didn't know this. Um, there were two things and um, Actually, there were, there were several things. <laughs> One of the workshops was done by a group, including the principal of Lakeside School in Seattle. And um, the head of that school had come from a very traditional East Coast school and was now opposite side of the country in a um, very uh, progressive school where they had been doing DE&I work for at least 10 years. And he said at that session, um, if any of you want to come back with your heads of school, if you're not a head of school, I'd be happy to meet with you. So Darren and I went, and we were the first school that had taken him up on his offer. And this was maybe two years later. So their journey and how deliberate, intentional, scaffolded it was, and how difficult it was, and they had a lot of money because of, of Microsoft and they would get stock dropped off and so they had the resources to be able to extend financial aid. So I remember thinking that this is a very complex journey we're starting. It's not as simple as we might have thought. So then at the end of, of POCC and each year the, the, the quality and caliber I think varies but in our particular year um, and we were the first Canadian school to go. Mm. Um, in our particular year, when we went to the student-led day on Saturday, um, I guess the, the emotion that the kids were feeling who were on financial aid and how on one hand they were very, very appreciative of the opportunity, but on the other hand, in many cases, it was, it was so hard for them to go to school every day because their reality was just so different than the regular fee-paying students. That made me think that this, the whole financial aid piece is not simple. And, and what kind of structures and supports, once we raise the money, do, do we need? And I guess the, the piece around, you, you can have diversity, but if you don't have inclusion, Mm. Then, then the diversity is for naught. 
Um, so the inclusion piece has been what we've been trying to work on at BSS. And so part of the work that, that I'm proud of that we've done as an institution is when we, and, and I'm, I'm digressing for a bit, but I'll come back, is when we did the National School Reform Faculty and, and we as an entire community went through the protocol training in mixed groups, um, as, as loosely described critical friends groups. But when we were able to use those groups and develop a common language and understand the vision and people were trained, like we have a tremendous number of coaches trained within the school, and then take those groups and bring in some of the cultural competency training that we did. Um, we, you know, we were just at the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more work to be done, but I think what's happening now is that from a grassroots perspective, it's, it's happening in the classrooms in the junior school, it's happening in the classrooms in the middle school, it's happening in the classrooms in the, in the senior school. We have that group that, that spent last week at the NAIS Diversity Leadership Workshop. We, we've had so many pieces popping up and, and it will be part, a, a strong part of the strategic directions as we go forward. So POCC has been um, transformational, I think, for people in this school to go and be at a conference and to be invited to be at a conference that is for people of color, mm -hmm. but to be there as a white ally um, is, is a privilege. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's so important that we do this work. And the POCC conference, I think, is one of the first that really was looking into some of that, those conversations. And now there's a lot of options. There's um, the White Privilege Conference that there was one in Canada. There's some in the States. There's also the deeper diversity training with Shaquille Choudhury. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different options that are popping up now, but mm -hmm. that POCC conference is really one of the like initial opportunities, which is, I think, when I went there in December of 2017, I think, I was, I was really taken aback by there still are a quite a number of white people in that room, even mm -hmm. though it's a space that's not designed for white people. Um, but thankfully, I think that there's more conversation just showing up in different places around how do we do this work as mm -hmm, white mm -hmm, educators mm -hmm. um, in institutions that historically have been very white dominated. But mm -hmm. that that is shifting now, which is really exciting. Well, one of the things that uh, that uh, Bernie now, who was head of uh, Lakeside, said that he, he has had taught a seminar course his, his whole career. I don't know if he still is, but at the time of the workshop in 2012 he was. And he said that as their population has become more diverse, the quality of that seminar course has increased exponentially because of the multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and students learning to sit back and hear difference and understand difference and question perhaps their own thinking on subjects. He said, you can't compare the, the richness and the value of that seminar course when I started teaching it and that seminar course mm. now. It makes people smarter. It, like understanding and empathizing with people that are different than you makes you a smarter person and it's good for everybody in the room. It's not just good for, I mean, sometimes I feel like that narrative is like, it's good for the people that have always been part of this institution. It makes them smarter, but it makes everyone smarter. Well, there's a reciprocity that, yeah. that uh, no, everybody benefits. Mm -hmm. Apart from the moral imperative, mm -hmm. everybody, everybody benefits. And it is the world we live in. And it's an interesting world. So, so mm -hmm. why would we want to stay 
isolated from from that world yeah it's it's really quite incredible the work that you championed at the school and I know that you with had, others with others I, it's, yeah. I mean such a testament to your leadership Barb that every time I give you a compliment you're like but there were all these other people doing it too you had a huge role to play in that and I think knowing even just that you were interested in this work and that I could go to your office and say, have you read this article or what about this book? Like that really matters in an institution to have somebody on the senior leadership team who really cares about some of those topics that wants to dig deeper, that is curious, that knows you don't have all the answers. Like that's a really important thing. And that has made a huge difference, I think, to our collective learning at our school. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to change gears a little bit now, and we're going to change into our ticket out the door, which is a series of rapid-fire questions. Uh, you cannot prepare for them. Short answers, short questions. We're going to do it nice and fast. Are you ready for a ticket out the door? I'm ready. <laughs> you look very serious now. What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? When my knee is not broken is I go for a power walk. And I love walking along the Bloor Viaduct. Yes. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Read. Favorite school safe snack? Chocolate. <laughs> Three things you like about yourself? Um, I like that I am curious. I like that I'm interested in other people. And I like that I have energy. What is that the top of your retirement bucket list? I finish tomorrow. Friday morning we head to the East Coast. And I have a bag, a big canvas bag of books. And I can't wait to have nothing but time to read those books and to start getting fit again since mm -hmm. my knee is better. What is the first book that you want to read? Um, it's actually a book that a, a teacher gave me that I, I cheated a bit and started, um, Calypso. David Sedaris' oh, Calypso, I started reading that on, a, on an airplane trip. What is their, your favorite book to read to young people out loud? Oh, my favorite book when the kids were small was Goodnight Moon. Mm. And the last question, and the last question, what do you think is the future of learning? I, I think the future of learning is much more collaboration, and I know we have a lot now, far fewer structures. I think we need to look at the structure of school and um, make that much more outward facing with much more uh, focused work on partnerships and not necessarily being in the school 10 months a year, maybe it's a 12 month year, maybe they're independent study projects, but I think it has to be less structured um, and still fit the ministry requirements, but much less structured and much more outward focused. That's really exciting. I wanna participate in that future. Thank you so very much for having this conversation. It means a lot to me, but I know that people listening, it means a lot to them as well, so thank you. Thank you, Celeste. I hope you got something valuable out of this conversation and experienced firsthand the deep wisdom, impressive institutional knowledge, and commitment to excellence that Barb has brought to her career. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out on Twitter at teach underscore tomorrow, on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow, or on the website cohort21.com slash teaching tomorrow. And let me know what resonated with you. 
The hardest part about the podcast medium is that there is very little way for you as an audience to engage. So come on out from under your headphones and please say hello on social media. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Get out there and go be the passionate learner you are. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.